Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome, listeners, to the first installment in our Jason Bourne movie review series. Today, we are reviewing The Bourne Identity. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And no, not the 1988 Richard Chamberlain Bourne Identity TV miniseries, but instead we are reviewing the theatrically released Matt Damon blockbuster hit that came out in June 14th of 2002. Right. And Corbin, do you remember ever seeing like trailers for this when you were a kid? Because I remember I don't, but I'm curious if you ever, if you do. Well, I, I don't. I would have been all of seven years old at the time. Mm. So my uh, TV stations were always like Disney Channel, Nickelodeon. Ah, yep. Cartoons were my daily diet probably when I was seven years old. Um, Around this time, I had also moved back uh, from Texas. That's right. So I I don't really remember much of anything on TV around um, 2002. I will tell you that I I do more so remember um, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Okay. And also uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man came out that year. I was more intrigued by those. That's right. They did come out this year. I forgot that Spider-Man was 2002. Yeah. But let's say, Alan, that we are transported back to 2002. We are legally able to see a PG-13 movie without our parents, or maybe we'd want to bring our dad along. I don't know. Would this trailer get you into the movie theater? I'm going to have to say probably not. Oh. Um, And I say that because eh, I'm coming with the pretense that I I am, as I am now, just in 2002. So I already have all the knowledge or all of, I guess, my opinions that I've kind of built up over the years. Uh, And I'm seeing this trailer for the first time, I'd say, right? I'm going to have to say probably not, uh, it looks kind of like a cliche spy movie with, with like the gimmick of, oh, the main character doesn't have his memory. He doesn't know who he is. Um, that seems to be kind of what it's going for. It's just this, it's more of a gimmick movie. So I don't I don't think so. I don't think I'd be very intrigued to go and see it uh, if I were as old as if I were who I am now in 2002. Move out of the way, James Bond. Heck yes, I would want to see this in theaters. <laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a heart-pounding PG-13 thriller with great action and mystery. It provides a nice setup for the story, but doesn't give anything away, despite it being super early 2000s. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. With that <laughs> announcer, it's like, now, Jason Bourne. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the soundtrack here, but... Yep. I mean, anybody could watch this trailer and know this is straight from the 2000s. I found the editing of the trailer to actually be very fun. And I would be very curious, especially because this was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this was around the time of the Pierce Brosnan James Bond films. 
And it was not, I don't think it was last year. It was the year before that. My dad and I watched all of the James Bond movies. And I got to say, those movies were becoming utterly ridiculous and awful. <laughs> so I think yeah. this was kind of the successor to James Bond in many ways. At least that's probably what they were hoping. This would be more of a, because James Bond is all about being a spy and a thriller type movie. This was, tr looks like it was trying to be more so like a serious spy movie. Right. And I mean, also around this time too, the Mission Impossible movie franchise had started to become a thing as well. That's right. Yeah. Uh, with Tom Cruise. So I, I found more of those kinds of vibes. Now, I haven't exactly seen the original few uh, Mission Impossible movies, but that's kind of what I was seeing out of these trailers is more on the long the line of, I guess, a mix of uh, James Bond and Mission Impossible with this trailer. So that's kind of where I got, I kind of see a lot of the uh, cliche spy movie gimmicks uh, that they have in the trailer, at least from what I'm seeing. I did actually just by chance, I picked up the book from Goodwill um, for my on my birthday, actually. And I thought, oh, I'm going to read it before we do this review. Well, the book is over 530 pages. Oh, and I determined I would have to read about 90 pages a day in order to get it done. Um, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> I love to read, but I don't have the willpower to read 90 pages. Right. That's a lot a of book. But I have read the first six chapters of the book. And okay. so far, the first six chapters are found within this movie. But the movie is very very much a condensed version. The book really elongates it. And the only major difference I've noticed so far is that Marie in the book is a doctor that he violently kidnaps in order to escape two men trying to assassinate him. Gotcha. So they're okay. heading, I'm, I'm at the point in the book where they're trying to head to Paris, but you're correct that the book is all about him squaring off against Carlos the Jackal. And that's kind of what the whole trilogy is about. And I was listening to writer Tony Gilroy talk about it. And he said he just kind of used the themes and ideas from the book as a blueprint to write kind of just a new story for the trilogy. Gotcha. Okay. So the other top movies for 2002, just so you have an idea of what else came out that year, a lot of uh, twos, uh, the two towers, Harry Potter two, Star Wars episode two. Also, two other movies we reviewed came out that year. M. Night Shyamalan's Signs and Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. That's right. That's right. We, we just did Insomnia, but a few weeks back. Yeah. And Best Picture of the Year went to A Beautiful Mind. Ah, uh, yeah. I have yet to see that, but I've heard very good things about it. I've seen it a few times. I own the Blu-ray. It is good. You should watch it. So the director is an interesting choice, Doug Lyman, because he came off of the movie Swingers with uh, John Favreau and, oh gosh, I can't remember his name, Vince Vaughn. Yeah. So Doug Lyman was kind of this indie hit. And so they really wanted him to come on board with this movie. And as I already said, Tony Gilroy wrote it and he's going to stick around for the rest of the series until the latest one, I think. And also William Blake Heron. The score is done by John Powell and the cinematography is done by Oliver Wood. They are going to stick around for quite a while also. Right. Now, the composer, John Powell, he does a lot of, uh, I guess, animated 
um, oh, like DreamWorks pictures kind of compositions. I know he's done. Oh, I didn't know that. So he's done. Uh, yeah, okay, that's right. How to Train Your Dragon. He did Rio. Robots as well. Happy Feet. All this trilogy, the Bourne movies, this first trilogy. Um, Kung Fu Panda, Hancock, Green Zone, Rio, Kung Fu Panda 2, Happy Feet 2. You get the idea. You get the idea. He does a lot of like animated stuff, mostly with DreamWorks and such. But I do know this this composer. Uh, I'm a very big fan of this composer. And it also looks like the cinematographer did Die Hard 2. He's He also did Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. We're going to be reviewing that eventually whenever the third movie gets yeah. gets released uh his his resume is weird he did Step Brothers, talladega nights uh a lot of will ferrell movies mm-hmm. the equalizer movies so i don't know the cinematographer has just kind of done everything it seems like mr holland's opus i, I don't know that really surprises me yeah so i mean at least at the very least it looks like uh, I don't know about Doug Lyman at this point, but it looks like those who are working on other parts of the movie, like cinematography, composition, and even script writing or screenplay, they have a lot of experience under their belt. Doug Lyman, however, I think, like you said, he's really only done swingers. Mm-hmm. I think like, there was one other movie that he did before this. Yeah, it was, but I think it was he's, Go. Yeah, he's a relatively new director, which is interesting. He is new to it, and he has done a lot since. Um, he yes, doesn't he come, is. he doesn't not come back to direct. He executive produces the rest of the series. Right. Um, but he has, he did Edge of Tomorrow. He's doing another Tom Cruise movie this year, or next year, where they are actually going to go shoot in space. Oh, yeah, yeah. The SpaceX, uh, and Tom Cruise space movie, I think is what it's called on IMDb or something like that. Yeah. Doug Lyman's directing that. So Lyman has stayed around in very prominent positions in Hollywood. Never really in the limelight. You just don't hear his name talked about, but he's, he's done a lot since then. Yeah. Yeah, he has. So how was this movie received when it came out? Well, uh, exceedingly well, actually. Um, critics gave it an 83% certified on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, man. Uh, users gave it a 93%. And uh, currently on IMDb, it holds a 7.9. And on Letterboxd, it's a 3.7 out of 5 with an average uh, rating of an 8 out of 10, like most people have given it that. And uh, audiences coming out of the theater, well, it got a cinema score of an A-. minus. Oh, wow. So, yeah, pretty much all across the board, people are very pleased with the Born Identity. Yeah, and it even got... Um, uh, 68 on Metascore, which is in the green. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's the lowest score that we have here, 68, that sounds like. Yes, that is true. Uh, and it's interesting because, keep that in mind, listeners, Metascore and Rotten Tomatoes, both are critics. They will tell two different stories yes. as we go yes. through this series. It's a kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, did it do very well opening weekend at the box office? Uh, it did okay. Uh, believe it or not, it came in number two. Because oh. Scooby Doo, Warner Brothers' big live action Scooby Doo, oh. just whooped this film's butt. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I, I'm sure if it went up against, you know, a, a very established property like yes. Scooby Doo going up against a a good book, well, a bestseller book now being made into a movie. Um, I'm sure Scooby Doo, the more established property, uh, kind of took the took it to prom 
uh, when it came to the <laughs> box office. <laughs> yeah, Scooby-Doo grossed $54 million at the box office opening weekend, whereas this film grossed $27 million. Hmm. But keep in mind, Scooby-Doo opened in well over a thousand more theaters than this gotcha. movie. So what, wait, what was the budget for uh, Born Identity? So the budget was $60 million. Okay. and That's surprisingly low. It is, but keep in mind that this is a, kind of a brand new independent property. Uh, fair, okay. Fair. Robert Ludlum's books are international bestsellers. They were huge right. at the time. I mean, put this into perspective. When one of Ludlum's books, I can't remember which book came out, it beat uh, Stephen King's, uh, I believe, I want to say it was The Dead Zone maybe. It beat Stephen King on the New York Times bestseller list. Wow. So for a point there, Ludlum was more popular than Stephen King. Wow. Um, now, Robert Ludlum was born in 1927, and he has passed away since. Mm -hmm. So, But with a $60 million budget, they doubled it here domestically, grossing $121.6 million. And the foreign markets, $92.3 million for a worldwide total of $214 million, which is impressive for this new movie. Do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Because I don't. Yeah. My uncle showed me this original trilogy way back. Uh, mm. Oh, man. It wasn't quite a decade ago, but I think it was close, probably about seven or so years ago. Um, I remember he did show us, I think us is in me and my brother and probably my cousins, this trilogy of movies. So I do remember seeing this trilogy through him. It was, it was his fault that I, uh, saw this trilogy of movies. I don't really remember the first time I saw it. All I know is it was around the time the Bourne Ultimatum, which was 2007. Yep. I would have been around 12 years old. I remember seeing the trailer for that movie. And I was very close to 13 and my dad looked into it and he said, okay, let's go ahead and watch the first two movies. And then I'm pretty sure I saw the Bourne Ultimatum in theaters. I could be oh, wrong wow. about that. I could be wrong. Um, I'm not sure, but I might have just saw them all in home video. Um, but I just remember seeing the trailer for that movie and I'm like, whoa, this looks awesome. I hadn't seen the previous two just yet. Mm -hmm. But I, I just remember having very excited feelings around the time. Yeah. Well, if you do want more background on Robert Ludlum writing the book, it being adapted into a TV miniseries, how that was well received, um, just how this film came out, the production behind all of that and its impact. We've just given you we've talked about an, a summary glimpse right here. But go ahead and listen to the story of the Born Identity that did come out last week to get you prepared for a sneak preview for it. But if you are interested in more of that, then go ahead and jump into there. Otherwise, we are going to be jumping into the plot of the movie, which does mean spoilers. So if you haven't seen The Born Identity, I highly recommend that you pause it right now. Go ahead and check out the film. Watch the whole trilogy because we are going to be reviewing the trilogy and the other two films associated with it as well. So you've been warned, listeners. Spoilers are coming up. All right, Jason Bourne, played by Matt Damon, is a man without a memory. He was part of a black ops subgroup within the CIA known only to a select few as Treadstone. The purpose of this covert team was to handle political assassinations. When a mission to take out a volatile African leader goes south, Bourne loses his memory and wreaks havoc for the agency. 
By chance, he meets Marie, played by Franca Patenta, a vagabond woman seeking adventure in her seemingly meaningless life. The two go on the run together as they make their way to Paris, where Bourne has an apartment. They meet and defeat two assassins along the way, and Bourne is finally able to draw out his superior, Conklin, played by Chris Cooper, who has been hunting him from behind the scenes this whole time. In order to keep Marie safe, Bourne sends her away with a large sum of money in the hope that she'll lead a more prosperous life. In a final confrontation, Bourne begins to slightly remember his attempted assassination on the African leader, the moment leading up to his amnesia. He barely escapes with his life, but does spare field agent Nikki, played by Julia Stiles, who does play a more important role in later films. In a twist, Conklin is assassinated by the command of his superior, Ward Abbott, played by Brian Cox, who we actually reviewed as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter a few years ago. That's right. I forgot about that. He was much younger, though. Yes, he was. Later, Bourne leaves France for the south of Spain, where he finally finds Marie, and the two have their happy ending as credits roll. All right, well, I guess the best place to start talking about this movie is, I guess, in its opening. Because as you explained, uh, the character of Jason Bourne, what we come to find out late into the story, is actually that Jason Bourne is a deadly assassin. He was trained by the C by a secret operation in the CIA, within the CIA, known as Treadstone, to become this very, I guess, dangerous killer who, as you said goes on uh, operations to kill political figures. So it's interesting to start off with our main character lying in the ocean with no memory at all, being picked up by a boat of fishermen. And it kind of gives this feeling of this character, and this kind of comes to light off, of course, a little bit later in the story, that especially when they pull him from the water, he's kind of been like washed somewhat of, a, of the things that he's done. He's coming He's coming out as a diff much different person than what he was maybe just a few hours prior because he has amnesia. He has no idea what his previous life is. So it was an interesting visual to have, especially when you recall it later, for our main character to be in the ocean and then to be pulled out from the ocean onto a, onto a boat, signifying some kind of rebirth when we have no clue as to what exactly is happening, uh, at least at the time. Yep, you're right. That is the exact symbolism and... Robert Ludlum's naming behind the character is born because he is right. born anew and he is especially born from the sea and he does emerge a completely different person. So I had never really thought about that symbolism before reviewing the film, but it is a nice way to open the film. And I would say an unusual way as well. It doesn't open with an action scene, doesn't right. open with a conversation. It opens with a man floating in the water. And this man, and uh, okay, we just re reviewed Memento not that long ago. Did you get any kind of Memento vibes from watching this? I guess a little bit, yeah, now that you mentioned it, especially with, of course, the memory angle. Uh, both characters mm -hmm. kind of suffer mm -hmm. from somewhat of the same thing, um, some kind of, some form of amnesia. Um, now, their realistic, uh, I guess, approach of how these movies go about that is very different. Um, but we'll save that until a little bit later, but you are right. There are some similarities between this and Memento because they do both deal with some form of amnesia. So I did get some Memento vibes watching it this time. Yeah. And also Bourne has clues embedded in his skin, just right. as our main character Mo and Memento has the clues on his yep. skin as well. 
And originally, this was not going to be the opening of the film, actually. Oh, really? Yes. There is an alternate alternate opening and an alternate ending that are very interesting. I do recommend listeners you go check them out. So they originally shot two different endings. Well, no, I'm sorry. They originally shot an ending, um, but then they worried because this was during filming um, 9-11 happened. Ah, okay. And so they're like, oh, great. We don't want to trigger any people. We don't want to come across as insensitive to explosions, international violence, anything like that. So they did have to redo the ending a little bit. Um, but it, they also wanted the ending to be, I don't know, they wanted it to be kind of uplifting, but also have a slightly darker tone um, because the whole fight at the end uh, where he's trying to escape, that wasn't going to be in the original movie, actually. Okay, gotcha. Um, so the alternate opening is is even more um, like Memento because the opening of the movie was actually going to be the end of the movie and then the end would be the end. So it was all going to be told in flashback apparently. Hmm. And Bourne is searching for Marie. He has some kind of weird blackout. Everybody like disappears. And then in the end, he wakes up and Brian Cox's character is saying like, it almost feels like wizard of Oz or something. He's telling him like, it's okay. You know, you forgot everything, but you still are pretty good at fighting. So you're welcome to come back to the agency. Um, and he's like, why would I work for you? And Cox's character says, it's just strictly volunteer. You know, we could always just use you as a mercenary whenever we want. Right. And then Bourne goes and finds Marie and they just like literally run to each other. They embrace kiss. It, there's this awful early two thousands romantic, like, uh, uh, edgy song being played huh. as the camera spins around them credits roll it is weird bad it would completely change the movie that's that is weird that is very strange it's bad and also there are some deleted scenes that are in there they're bad they really changed the movie and so i'm so glad they cut them interesting yeah because that is interesting that i guess that there was a lot of cheesiness that was ripped out of this movie there was to be fair, it is still early 2000s. There is still some of that early 2000s cheese within this movie. But I don't know. It, that's interesting to me that there was so much of it that was taken out. So I didn't, I guess I didn't expect that. I, I expected it to be, you know, kind of the same way all, all throughout production, pretty much. Not like it was going to be told like through flashbacks and whatnot. Yeah. And that's one thing that I would say does separate this movie and make it unique for the time because, like I said, James Bond came out that year and that movie was a complete joke. I mean, right. it's truly awful. It's very video game-esque, extremely cheesy. This is taking a far more realistic approach. Don't, right. I mean, amnesia aside, as far as the film is shot, as far as the fighting is staged, as far as the dramatization the the inside look at covert black ops operations this is a serious spy thriller yeah and i think that's part of why i guess it got as good a scores as it did is because it wasn't like those cliche spy movies it tried to take itself uh at least tried to make a more grounded spy thriller right it tried to pull in you know black ops covert black ops operations i mean with amnesia but not go so far that it kind of 
goes outside of the realm of you know, you know outside the realm of plausibility it kind of keeps itself contained within realism and i think that's at least from my perspective why it was received so well is because with a lot of spy movies there's a lot of explosions there's a lot of you know impossible technology that they use um but this one is not that this this born identity and what we'll find out in the later movies as well it tries to keep itself within the realm of plausibility where it feels like this could potentially be real now of course this one compared to the other two movies that we'll talk about a little later feels very different because yeah. it does have a lot of those spy cliches still within it but i would still consider it something to be within the realm of plausibility oh no absolutely and i like that they are actually taking a different approach of a character who doesn't know who he is and neither do we we're discovering who he is along the way and so uh once he starts karate chopping people and speaking different languages, we're mm -hmm. just as surprised as him. And it was really exciting to see my fiance's reaction because she was on the edge of her seat. She was really engaged. She was jumping, gasping. She was really into it and surprised at a lot yeah. of the, the twists and turns of the movie, which is cool to see because I have seen these movies so many times. I'm like, oh yeah, he's, he's Jason Bourne. Like I know who Jason Bourne is. But watching this first movie, and especially it gave me a little more perspective reading the book because you spend even more time with him while he's very confused. You realize that, is he a spy? Is he just some kind of like international businessman that's just really good at stuff? The The mystery is built up pretty well and it's fun to, to watch that unfold. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I found myself engaged with it continuously, especially for this viewing, even though I've seen it before, right? There is, it starts off with this, essentially a blank slate of a character where he doesn't know who he is and the audience, of course, has no idea who he is, especially for first time viewers. So it makes the film almost instantly intriguing because you wonder why in the world was he in the ocean? Why is there that thing embedded in his neck? All these questions, why does he have two bullets in the back of his, in his back? There are a lot of questions that are asked and they continue to, I would say, cleverly roll out, you know, more and more about Jason Bourne's character as he moves along to keep it almost consistently, con consistently intriguing. I think that's uh, something that I found to be uh, rather interesting this time around is, you know, how they play around with Jason Bourne's character and revealing that information. And I'm really glad they don't really spoon feed anything to us in this movie. Yeah. Um, especially with watching with my SSG goggles on, I'm really trying to understand as well what the purpose of Treadstone is. We're just not given any background on Conklin's character, on Abbott's character. All we know is that Treadstone is, is an off the books operation that's being right. run without even the CIA director's knowledge. Right. And this is something that Ludlum always thought in his personal life and wanted to bring into his books is there was something that the government was always doing that we just would never know about. Mm -hmm. There's always some kind of black ops operation going on. And I like how, I like how they present it to us because we are placed in the shoes of Bourne and we're very confused. But if Bourne had this pre-knowledge already that he had lost, then he wouldn't be confused. We wouldn't right. be confused if we had been following Bourne's journey up to that point, but they drop us in the middle of Bourne's journey right up to the point where he loses his memory. And then all of this stuff, uh, that's why I love his confrontation with Conklin at the end. 
And because they're also confused, like, why is our agent just acting sporadic and rogue? And they're like, we just got to take this dude out. Like, he, he's gone haywire. And I love when Conklin says, this is unacceptable, soldier. And I love the expression on Damon's face when he's very pained and he says, unacceptable. He just doesn't remember what's going on. Right. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting to see how this man continues to find out new things about himself that he, I mean, obviously has no clue at least to begin with because he has amnesia, right? It's interesting to see like, uh, again, back to how intriguing it can be because of how it lays out information, finding out always oh, this bank account in Switzerland that has, that has, you know, dozens of passports with dozens of fake names and mm -hmm. currencies from all over the world with a gun, my mind you. Um, <laughs> So he takes all that and runs with it. Then uh, later on, of course, the they send out all of the operatives to fight him or to take him down. And when he comes across one of them, he uses a pin to kill one of them. Uh, it's interesting to see, like, you know, I guess how, I guess technically how um, superhero-like Jason Bourne is because of all these crazy things that he can do. He, at one point in one scene, says, oh yeah, I know that the best place to find a gun is in the truck out back. I know so many different things about this area. Why should? Why do I know that? Why on earth would anyone need that kind of information? We need to know that kind of information is when he Maria at a, are at a diner. It kind of paints this superhero-like character, but again, it's still within, like, it's not so far out there that it becomes a superhero movie per se. It's still, again, within, the, within some kind of realism. And that's something I really do like is that we see Jason Bourne get beat up. And I mean, throughout the whole series, he gets bruised, beat up, but he does keep going. So he's not just this machine that's unrelatable. And yeah. I know that this movie is produced by Frank Marshall. We've reviewed a lot of Frank Marshall productions. Yeah, Usually have. he produces with Kathleen Kennedy. But and he said that's also why they were very attracted to bring Doug Lyman on here is because Lyman wasn't going to check the lighting per se. He wasn't going to line up the shot. He was just going to throw the camera on his back and yell action and they were mm -hmm. going to go for it. And so that's why I really do like the way the action is choreographed. It's also choreographed by Nick Powell, who did Braveheart and Gladiator. Okay. So he knows what he's doing. Yep. And uh, the action is very well choreographed and it's also very well filmed. Um, particularly one moment that stood out to me is when Jason's in the U.S. Embassy and he just kind of slings the guy over, throws him onto the ground, and oh, he yeah. also takes out the two guards. And then we get a like kind of a POV shot of Jason just like frantically looking at the people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting because it feels very frenzied, but it also it just gives you a sense of realism that you usually don't get in action movies because it's taking time to look at the people that were just beat up and look at their bewildered reaction. They're not just yeah. passed out, they're bewildered. Yeah, and I think that's partially why I also found this movie to be intriguing uh, coming back to it after, I don't know, I don't know how many times I've seen this too. It's probably five or six times at this point. But especially this time around coming back to it, like you were just talking about, they do give a lot of uh, relatable characteristics to Jason Bourne. He, especially like you were just saying in that scene when he slings a, an officer over his back, uh, and then you get to see like a close-up shot of those officers. And then, of course, I guess 
earlier on when he when two officers find him in the park and he just like knocks them both out without even really thinking about it and then when he snaps out of it he's like wait what have i what have i just done it, it, they do in interestingly give him a lot of relatability a lot of human elements to his character because again in these in early 2000s especially with mission impossible or uh the james bond series uh they were always very charismatic characters but they weren't exactly somebody who had i guess realistic realistic responses to some of the things that happened in the story and that is something that i think damon does a phenomenal job with is his uh responses to situations he does give a broad range of emotions mm. because at times he is very stoic and reserved because he's trying to just contemplate who he is and where he's at. And then at other times he gives some great warmth towards the character Marie. But then once he is triggered into commando mode, then he just like has this really stern expression. He just shuts down and he knows where the access points are. He knows to pull the map off of the wall, which yep. is really cool actually. And he knows where to find a gun, how to disarm somebody just right uh, to use different kinds of martial arts and to be able to covertly just like cling on to the sheer face of a pretty high up building. So yeah. I would say Damon's expression is interesting because at times you even see that he surprises himself. And that's something I, I never really picked up on before was that he doesn't realize he is a violent killer until he just snaps into that mode. So there's really two sides of him and he's shocked because he also learns some empathy from Marie. And then mm -hmm. at the same time, he's also like, but I'm in this very dark world where I have to kill in order to survive as well. So kind of that character arc of going from a cold blooded killer to wait a minute, I don't want to just kill people. That right. is also what makes his character interesting. Yeah, and, the, and that's also what makes the character of Marie so, I guess, important to Jason's, char to Jason's uh, character arc is because she is the one who, like, essentially shows him empathy, right? There is kind of, like, I guess, this fight within uh, Jason Bourne uh, when he's finding out who he is, and then, of course, later on finds out what the actual story is with this character, um, while also being tugged on the other side um, of Marie's character showing him some kind of compassion, some kind of love. There's what he's missing is uh, some kind of human connection. He's missed it for who knows how many years, especially on being under the supervision and under the training for Treadstone. So it's in it's interesting to see, I guess, his character have somewhat of an internal struggle between uh, that empathy and of course defending for his life and, and, and deciding to kill somebody. Um, and then ultimately at the very end, kind of going towards that empathetic level, towards that human connection level with Marie and he walks away from Treadstone. It's interesting to see that, I guess that's something I didn't pick up on until watching it this time, is Jason Bourne kind of being a character in some ways, it's, not, it's kind of subtle I feel, but in some ways being afraid, especially after meeting Marie and getting to know Marie, being afraid of losing Marie and losing that human connection, especially when he wants to do good now that he's become this blank slate from the very beginning of the movie. Um, and now he gets to start all over again. I do like that she is his one link with humanity. Yeah. And, you know, this opposite sex has shown him 
uh, compassion and she is also interested and cares about him. And in her, he does kind of find this model and example of innocence that has just been utterly lost from his life. Yeah. And so she does serve the purpose as kind of grounding him and uh, keeping him connected. Um, they do have an interesting relationship because mm -hmm. at times they're lovers and at other times she's like, get the heck away from me. What, what in the world have I got myself into? And then at other times she's like, all right, let's go on this adventure. Never quite fully ever understanding the stakes until yeah. the, until the end when they have to part ways. Right. In some ways she maybe even finds what he does kind of fun, uh, at some yes. points maybe. Well, that's really the only way I could figure out because my fiance and I were like, so she's going to just go with this stranger. And at first it makes sense when you realize that she has just moved around from place to place. She's never, mm -hmm. she's just kind of a vagabond, doesn't have any permanency in her life. She's just always like out to seek adventure. Born is clearly a cute looking American that she's like, Hey, why not? Yeah. Um, the only thing though that disappoints me is I feel like we just never get to really understand her character enough or where she's yeah. come from or why she constantly just stay, stays with him. Yeah, I mean, that is fair. I, I do kind of wish that they had given a bit more to Marie's character. I think she's definitely a very important character. And without her, the story would be missing a lot because yes. like you were saying, she is kind of... Uh, her level of innocence is what Paul is born to not be, not to just drop right, drop right back into Treadstone again. He's, he, it's because of her becomes more defiant of it. Um, but you are correct. There, there isn't a whole lot to her character. There's enough there, but I feel that she isn't exactly as fleshed out as I, I wish she could be. Um, isn't, I guess Personally, it doesn't bother me too much, but I do know, I do recognize that there is some parts of her character that I wish uh, were more developed than what they are in the movie. It, it did surprise me upon this viewing because I just always remember really liking her character and I still do like her character. Mm -hmm. I just found myself wanting to know more about her character and also getting maybe a little bit more sufficient reasons as to why she makes the choices that she does. Yeah. I feel like some of the choices at some point become just irrational, but that's all we get from her. Um, one of the thing, one of my favorite scenes of this movie actually, and it's probably the scene that's always stuck with me during this film is the face off with Clive Owen's character at the farmhouse. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know that one's a very famous scene. Uh, that is probably the best sequence in the movie where he shoots the giant propane tank Mm -hmm. It blows up and then they just kind of have this game of cat and mouse and uh, Clive Owens is silent until the very end where he has that. It's now a famous line. I would say I do love it when he says, look what they make you give. Yep. And then he just falls over and dies. I'm like, oh, OK, that's yep. that's a great scene. And even like some of somewhat of a symbolic nature too. Uh, Jason Bourne never really had much of a family. And Marie is kind of, I guess, the closest thing to him really having, even making any kind of family, right? And so when a, rel a relative of Marie is put in danger where there are kids involved, 
Uh, and we know later on in the story that Jason Bourne has a soft spot for that kind of a thing is something that really triggers him. So it's also kind of symbolic of something that he's putting in danger, maybe even again, uh, because he did do that uh, in the Wambosi job where he was going to kill Wambosi, but because his kids were around, he fludged. And that's what caused him to be in the situation. And it is interesting also to see that Bourne is not in the same boat with loss per se, because Owen's character loses his life. And in many ways, Bourne also has lost his life. He doesn't mm-hmm. know anything about his, couldn't, can't remember anything past the last two weeks. And he is trying to, that's kind of the, the case of this movie is Bourne is trying to move on. He's been reborn. He wants a new life. Yeah. And this treadstone just isn't letting go is they're not letting up. And uh, it is interesting to see the other assassin at the very end say, look what they make you give. And what what's it all for, essentially, yeah. in the end? That's a great sequence. Yeah. Um, they also, this movie also introduces us to the incredible car chases that'll just get better and better throughout the films. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know probably the one that sticks out in my mind is, I think it's in Paris. It's when he drives that little that little red Fiat yeah. through the town. That's probably oh, yeah. the one I go to almost immediately when I think about this movie and its action scenes. It is... It's not as great as I remember because mm-hmm. the, I believe in each sequel, they'll just keep topping themselves. But this does yep. introduce us to like, wow, this is a fantastic car chase. It's very hard hitting. They're putting the camera right next to him when he gets plowed into from the side and he just keeps going on that little car. Yep. It's a lot of fun. It's There's a lot of adrenaline involved. Um, the only thing that kind of ruined this scene for me this time around is the awful soundtrack attached to his especially that scene. I guess I'll say this about the soundtrack. I do I do enjoy the soundtrack. Uh, of course, it gets better with each movie. Um, <laughs> but you are correct. This track in particular for this scene is not great. It's in this kind of partially to the soundtrack. It's very early 2000s. I will say this. Um, it at least, at least from what I, from what I remember of the early 2000s, it at least sticks out in terms of is like actual score. Um, it makes it sound a, bit, a little bit unique, but maybe that's just because I've listened to these this trilogy of soundtracks uh, way too much. Um, but I this scene, yes, is, is not great. I will agree with you on that. But for the most part, I don't mind the music of this movie. I felt like I was playing Fusion Frenzy on the original Xbox. Oh, really? <laughs> I thought the soundtrack felt worthy of an early Xbox game. The only part of it that I can praise is the iconic theme, the main theme of the series now. Um, that's the only part that John Powell will really carry over into the next films. And I think, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think if you, it's not quite as iconic as Star Wars or Jurassic Park, but Jason no, Bourne, no, not even close. <laughs> Jason Bourne, though, has his own theme. I would say at least when I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that gets me in the mood for the Bourne films. But otherwise... This score is a, clearly a piece of its time, and it has not oh, aged yeah. well, in my opinion. You know, I agree. It It is, like a lot of things in this movie, a product of the early 2000s, um, partially with the car chase, partially with some of the dialogue. Um, it is just kind of, you know, a product of its times. Uh, but I, I do still think that the soundtrack, while not definitely not my favorite of, the th- of this original trilogy, 
Um, I do think that it at least stands out compared to a lot of other things from the early, early 2000s. You know, what also stood out was the awful sound effects. Especially oh, yeah. when they're fighting, when he's fighting yeah. the first assassin in the Paris apartment. My fiance just started cracking up. I mean, it is, I'm telling you, it's like very video game-esque. No, you're right. It, it is very cheese. It is very <laughs> early 2000s cheese with some of these fight scenes with all, with the punching sound effects, I think, kind of is just uh, probably the, the biggest, I guess, sin you could say against it being that cheesy because they are, you know, so early 2000s sound effects. It's not even funny. Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for The Born Identity? I will have to, I guess, say this kind of for the whole, this, this, this trilogy, I do have some nostalgia coming into it. So that does kind of play a part of my rating and a part of what I'm seeing. But this time around, I did try, of course, as usual, to go in with as little on my mind on about it as I could. Uh, there is a lot of early 2000s cheese to the story, a lot. And it's kind of hard for me to look past that um, in some points. Some of it is fine, some of it, I, I don't know. Either way, I did find myself enjoying this movie quite a bit to, to a point where, I mean, I already own it on Blu-ray. I have the trilogy on Blu-ray. Um, but this is probably the one I return to the second least. Um, I think, if I remember right, Ultimatum was the one I've seen the most. Either way, it's a it's an intriguing story, but not one that I find to be super engaging now be, Now that I know the twist. Now, now that I know who Jason Bourne is and I've seen it five times, it's not as engaging. I do find it very fun to watch, but it's not one that I'm going to reach for um, every time I feel like I want to watch some kind of spy movie. Um, so yeah, it's fun. I, I do enjoy it and I think it's a good movie, but it's not one that I think, uh, not one that I hold super in super high regard. So at the end of the day, I I'm probably going to end up on a seven out of 10. I'm still going to give it a solid recommend though. A little did anyone realize at the time, but the born identity would kick off an espionage thriller phenomenon that would capture audiences of the first decade of the 21st century. In many ways, this trilogy has become instant classics. There's not many who haven't heard of Jason Bourne. Sadly, Robert Ludlum didn't live to see the wildly popularity of this film, and not to mention the incredible success to follow. This first installment nicely sets up the mystery of who Jason Bourne is and the shadowy international web he's tangled up in. Damon and Potente give solid performances, especially Damon as the charming, yet at times frightening man of mystery. Lyman brings a strong indie and foreign quality to this film, which makes it stand apart from the sequels to follow. Gilroy does a fantastic job with moving the story along, albeit at the expense of character development. I really enjoyed seeing everything shot on location. That brought a concrete realism most films are lacking. Also, the action scenes are top rate. Unfortunately, the soundtrack hasn't aged well, which does serve as more so a distraction 20 years later, instead of a pulse-pounding rhythm. The Born Identity is a strong start. The film receives seven stars out of 10 with a solid recommend. And as Alan mentioned, he owns the trilogy on Blu-ray. I own the, I've owned the trilogy on Blu-ray for many, many years. So mm -hmm. would you recommend to listeners that they pick up this first installment on Blu-ray or DVD? Should they wait for it to go on sale or, or just go out and get it now? I think now it's pretty cheap to get on to get the Blu-ray. Um, 
I guess I would assume that it's pretty cheap. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that if you're a fan of, uh, I guess, spy movies, if you're a fan of action movies in general, this would probably be one that uh, a lot of action nuts would probably enjoy. Um, I guess also to kind of, and somewhat see where this more spy uh, phenomenon kind of, well, I guess it didn't really help at all with all the spy phenomenon that kind of came out a little bit later in the uh, in the earlier 2000s. But yeah, I would say that this would be a good a good way to pick up on Blu-ray. Yeah, I I absolutely recommend to I recommend if you're just curious, you want to dip your toe in the water, then you can't go wrong just at least picking up the first installment. Mm-hmm. But they have released the trilogy in a number of of box sets and um that you can buy all what is it? All five films for 30 bucks. Oh, really? On Blu-ray. Wow. In, in its own uh, box set. Uh, mm-hmm. You can get the trilogy by itself for less than 20 bucks on Blu-ray and digital HD. So, yeah, you're, these films are very accessible in high definition. Um, they have also gotten 4K releases. I'd yep. be curious to watch this one in 4K. Yeah, is I'm assuming it's shot on a film. Oh, yeah. But I'm not. Ent- I guess I haven't exactly looked at it, but. Well, after watching The Born Identity what else would you recommend the listeners check out? If you like The Born Identity, um, the first thing on my mind is Mission Impossible. Now, I haven't seen the original, I think the original four, I want to say. The first one I saw was Ghost <laughs> Protocol. Um, but I would say anything from Mission Impossible, so far as at least Ghost Protocol and on, I can't really speak for the original three. Uh, if you like this, and I think you would enjoy at least those. Yeah, I do second that. The Mission Impossible, I don't, I don't know, there's like six or seven movies out right now. Yeah. Definitely check those out. They are very fun films to watch. The, my recommendation is going to be, I would say, out of the ordinary, actually. I'm going to be recommending Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Oh, interesting. That is a movie about a man with a mistaken identity, and everyone believes that he is a CIA ghost CIA operative looking to take down so-and-so. And he does uh, come in contact with a young woman and they kind of have a, a romantic affair together. And what gave me the idea to recommend that was reading uh, Ludlum's book, because mm-hmm. at least so far, Ludlum's book is more so close to North by Northwest than it is to this 2002 film. But nevertheless, this is an Alfred Hitchcock uh, espionage spy thriller with Cary Grant. It is fantastic. I I watched it not that long ago, um, about a year ago. And I remember, I think I gave it a 10 out of 10. Oh, wow. Or 9 out of 10. It is phenomenal. So definitely check out North by Northwest. Yep. I, th- I know I've seen it before, um, but I do need to revisit it. I know I own that one as well. Well, it's great. I, mm-hmm. I actually want to go watch it again now. <laughs> Um, oh, okay. One other thing that I, I need to mention real quick is uh, I did notice uh, I had rated this twice on Letterboxd. The last time I apparently watched this movie was August 8th, 2016, almost four years ago. And I had given this film a 10 out of 10. Wow. And as we said, this is not the end of the Bourne films. The sequel audiences only had to wait 25 months to see the next film, which is 
the Born Supremacy. Right. But this time done by Paul Greengrass, another somewhat newcomer as well. Yes. I think he did two movies up until that point. Um, Nobody before had heard he of him. The, yeah, I think they know. I know that there was a movie called Bloody Sunday. I think that's what it's called. Mm, yeah, um, that's why he got the job. Yeah, and producers like, I like that. And so they yes. asked him to be director of Born Supremacy. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to see what my thoughts are on Born Supremacy next week because that's the one I remember least from this original trilogy. Like I said, that is one that I, for a while, considered my favorite and I was always going back and forth between that one. I would say I'm more so intrigued to see the Born Ultimatum. That's the one I really don't remember. That's and the one I feel was, I remember being my favorite of the trilogy. Okay, so that'll be interesting to see our different takes on the movies since clearly... Like Jason Bourne, I don't remember it very well, <laughs> and you seem to remember it very well, so that'll be interesting. And yeah. I got, I went, I watched mostly all of the Blu ray special features. So if you big up the Blu ray, it is jam packed with special features that are incredibly insightful. So I highly recommend you do watch the, uh, the Blu ray special features, right? That got me really excited for the sequel. So uh, I'm very excited to review the sequel and I'm excited to see how my thoughts have evolved or changed on it because, uh, yeah, I've got some thoughts on it. So we'll see. Yeah. But the question after the show, listeners, is tell us your first experience seeing The Born Identity. Was it in the theater, home video, or just before this podcast? I'm interested to see how people's memories have changed when it comes to this film. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with The Born Supremacy. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. 
No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. He did Horden, Here's a Who. Mm. Um, let me just look it up so I'm not like <laughs> spouting lies here. Because I, I definitely know this uh, composer. I'm a very big fan of this composer. That would capture audiences of the first decade of the 20th century. Excuse me. 21st century. I have to reread the whole sentence now. 